is known as the heavenly dwellings or the divine abodes. In Pali the word is Brahma Viharas. And I want to speak about them in the context of talking a little bit about Kama also. Karma in Sanskrit might be a more familiar version of the word, or kamma in Pali. Because I think that sometimes there is, there can be a way of misunderstanding the Buddhist teachings about this. So, In fact, that's often uh, something that you might hear, or at least in my circles, (laughs) it's something that I might often hear, you know, something terrible happens to someone, and somebody would say, oh, that's their kama. And, And oftentimes I think that it is a way, it's a way of uh, sort of drawing a line between point A and point B that isn't necessarily the right line to draw. And by that I mean that while the, the early Buddhist understanding is that whatever intentional actions we take have a, an energetic consequence that corresponds to the quality of that intention, the the wholesome or unwholesome quality of that intention. Uh, It's not a deterministic kind of rule. It is not so easy to, uh, with certainty, say that this leads to that or this thing must have created that. Because it is a kama, is a, a very complex uh, principle that is at work. And some of you may have heard me say this before, I often liken it to like gravity. Right? So gravity is a universal principle, it's at work everywhere as far as we know. 
although there are, we have come to find out that there are some places where there is no gravity or there is only a little or it works in a very different way. It bends around in ways that we didn't expect. We think we have it all figured out and the formula is all tied down and then something new <laughs> is discovered and we find out that gravity continues to be more complicated than we thought. And Kamba is, is like that in a way. In fact, the Buddha has been known for having said that to try to precisely determine karmic outcomes would make you crazy. It was the kind of thing that you shouldn't actually try to do. Even he would, with his, with his incredible mind, could encompass possibilities, numerous possible outcomes for different actions. And, I, and part of the reason for exploring this is because there can very easily be this tendency, especially for those of us who were raised with different religious systems, to fall in this idea that, oh, I did this terrible thing in my past, and that means I'm going to hell. Right? That would be a way of like saying that this event has a direct line drawn to it with that particular outcome. And you might even read things in the discourses that sound uh, like they're saying that if that's what you're looking for. In other words, you might interpret in that way. But the, there's a more nuanced view to it, and there's an actual really good reason for having a more nuanced view. So I want to talk a little bit about a sutta that's called the that's that's usually translated as the deed born body, the deed born body. So this is Anguttara Nikaya ten nineteen. Depending on who, so in the numbering system, sometimes in the in the number discourses. The numbering systems can get slightly off, one or two, depending on whose translation you're looking at. So this is using the Bhikkhu Bodhi translation of the number discourses. Number 10 to 19. So it starts out right away with a very strong statement by the Buddha saying, I do not say that there is a termination of volitional comma that has been done and accumulated so long as one has not experienced its results, and that may be in this life, in the next rebirth, or on some subsequent occasion. So in other words, he's saying, he starts out right away by saying, I'm not teaching you... <coughs> <clears throat> that you can just eliminate comma, just get rid of comma in some way. Once the action has been done, there are some results that need to unfold. But then the, the question is, well, what, what are the results that need to unfold, right? How does that work out? And then how would we become liberated? How would we become free of comma if we are beings that are creating comma every time we do something with intention. 
How would you ever become free of that cycle? But I also do not say, so then he gives the other side of it. And you really see, I, what I like about some of these discourses that are, that are a little more juicy or a little more meaty or um, require some, some nuanced understanding is that you really see the sophistication of thought that goes into these teachings, right? It's not simplistic. So then he says, so the next thing is, I do not say that there is a making of an end of suffering so long as one has not experienced the results of volitional karma that has been done and accumulated. So again, you, you have to experience some results in order to come to the point of full liberation. But then what? Then how? And this is where the metta comes in, interestingly. So he just makes an immediate shift to this practice of loving kindness. And he says, the noble disciple, the practitioner, the one on the path, who is free of longing, free of ill will, unconfused, clearly comprehending and mindful. Okay, so these are the preconditions. So you need to establish some mindfulness, right? And you need to set aside these, uh, some of these hindrances, like ill will, like uh, confusion, Longing, usually longing related to sense pleasure, sense stimulation. So you have to, at least temporarily, set aside these types of distractions in the mind, establish the mindfulness, and then dwell pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, metta. Likewise, the second quarter, the third quarter, and the fourth, fourth quarter. So we're not talking about football games here. It's not first, second, third, fourth quarter of the ball game. It is in space. So if you took the north and the, let's see, which way am I pointing now? West, that space between the north and the west represents like one quarter of the full circle, right? So one quarter in this direction, one quarter in that direction, one quarter in that direction, one quarter in that direction would be all the way around, right? And then so above and below. So then you get the idea, right? It is, it is full circle, full 365 in every direction. So one dwells pervading all of the directions with a mind imbued with loving-kindness. Everywhere, to all as to oneself. So not just out there, to other folks, other beings, other space, but this here as well, this one as well. Pervading the entire world with a mind imbued with loving-kindness vast 
exalted, boundless, without enmity and without a will. So this is the sort of what we would call the stock phrase or the, the, the set of phrases that's repeated over and over again in many discourses that is the instruction on what's called radiating loving kindness. Right? So there's a, there are forms, there are other suttas which we would call the recitation of loving kindness or the development, the karaniya metta means to do Metta, this is more like metta bhavana. This is the cultivation of metta as a quality of mind. And notice many, so you can notice many things about this. One thing that should stand out right away from this way that it's described in the directions is, and the fact that it's all and oneself, is that we're talking about a mind that's not contained in this body. I'm not talking about the brain. Right? You're pervading all directions, everywhere, right? with this quality. So we're talking about a mind that is, as it says in the sutta, vast. Really, really vast. Much more open and spacious than your, your typical mind that is, for example, constrained by fear or by worry or by thinking about the past or by uh, pain sometimes can also constrain the mind very tight into one place that you're focused on in the body, for example, or some emotional pain. Right? You can get very shut down around that. So... So this is a mind that's much more open than that. And with what? By what? By growing this quality, by sharing this quality of kindness. Of a really warm, loving beautiful, universal form of kindness. Some folks like to translate it as loving friendliness. Bhante Gunaratana likes to use loving friendliness. But to me, that's a little bit... that, that um, It's not quite strong enough. We we're talking about a very, very powerful quality of the mind. And it implies wishing that that being, including oneself, so this being or whatever beings are being touched by our metta, be well, right? that they be well. So what happens when you have a mind like that? Well, that practitioner understands this. Previously, my mind was limited and undeveloped. And now it is measureless and well-developed. No limited comma remains or persists there. Wow. 
That's a pretty strong statement. No limited karma persists in a mind fully imbued with loving-kindness. So in a way, we could look at this through various other lenses, various other metaphors, right? So there's the metaphor of, uh, for example, unwholesome comma as being like salt. So if you have a very small amount of comic energy or comic results or, or uh, even just to say wholesome results, like a glassful, and you pour in a tablespoon of salt, it's going to be pretty nasty. It's going to taste very salty, right? That's the stuff you might gargle with <laughs> rather than the stuff you would drink to feel better, to feel relieved, quenched. Versus if you take a tablespoon of salt and you pour it in the ocean, let's say it was a freshwater ocean, then you would not even notice the salt. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have any discernible effect for the sake of discussion, right? I mean, it goes in there, but the effect is not noticeable at all. And in the same way, what the Buddha is saying is that the practices of the Brahma-viharas are increasing the scope of the mind and the scope of one's karmic effects to such a degree that any mundane kama unwholesome or wholesome actually is very very limited in its effect because that huge wholesome comma is what's going to actually prevail so the, uh, the way that he says it in a different sutta just to give you you know a sort of different way of thinking about the same concept in the itibudaka um which is from Kudaka Nikai, from the minor, the so-called minor discourses. The Buddha says, whatever grounds there are for making merit that produces future birth. So we'll talk, I'll just talk in a minute about what doesn't produce future birth. So there's a possibility of making comma that isn't going to be creating future birth. But for for most situations, um, making good karma, that's what merit means, positive karma that leads forward on the path, that produces future birth, that affects what's going to happen in your karmic stream beyond this lifetime, right? Whatever way that you might think of doing that, whatever way you might think of improving your karmic stream, so to speak, after this lifetime, none of them are equal to a sixteenth part of the liberation of the mind by loving-kindness. So loving-kindness is sixteen times more powerful than any other karma that you can do that creates future states. Hmm? 16 times. Where the number 16 comes from? You have to ask the Buddha, I don't know. But it's huge, huge, right? 
And so what the proposition that is being presented here, just to go back to uh, thinking about well, what happens if we've done unwholesome things in our life, or what, how do we understand coming to some kind of absolute harmony with karma, because that's what liberated being actually does. They come into such a state of absolute harmony with karma that they're not producing any kind of karmic future results. Uh, by having seen it, by having seen how it works in their own karmic stream. Uh, if we think about how is it that this particular karmic stream is being affected, is being changed, is being transformed by the practice, right? then there, are, there is this, this you, could t- you can think of it as like a literal stretching of the mind, a literal opening of the mind to such a degree that it has all this beautiful positive energy. So you might say, oh, well then you could just do whatever bad stuff you want in your life and then you practice metta and everything would be okay. But actually it doesn't work like that because if you do whatever nastiness in your life and you're carrying around that agitation in your mind, you can't practice metta in this way. You could sit down, you could try it. Believe me that it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. The mind isn't, isn't in a state to be willing to do that, to have that degree of this very bright, very energized, very vast wholesomeness. But when you're able to do that, then there is, you can think of it as the karmic bubbles of things, the things that are sort of coming to fruition at various points in this lifetime are coming to fruition in a much bigger field, in a much bigger, much more positive field. And so, then the Buddha goes on and says, a woman or a man, this is one of the places where he specifically talks about both women and men, and he says, Um, a woman or a man should develop this liberation of mind by loving kindness because you can't take your body with you when you go. Mortals have mind as their core. (laughs) This is how it was translated by Bhikkhu Bodhi. Mortals have mind as their core. So it means something like the, the... the stream of karmic energies is related to consciousness. Those two things kind of play, uh, are expressing each other. So, but this body actually does happen. So the disciple, the person who's got all, who, who has practiced this kind of metta, understands Whatever bad deed I did here in the past with this deed-born body is all going to be experienced here. It will not follow along. It's going gonna, it's gonna to work itself out in this much more vast field. And that's where this idea of the deed-born body comes. So that's, a, that's what Bhikkhu Bodhi leaves us a, a little footnote there saying he gave it a very literal translation. And I would say that is, that is traditionally 
what early Buddhism would say, that these bodies, and some of you have heard me say this in different forms, these bodies that we have are resultants from our karmic energies. And they're, and they're also, as we do things in our lives, make choices in our lives, they're also playing those things out. So I bring all this forward for two reasons. One is, again, to, to dispel this notion that, um, that karma is deterministic, that if you did some horrible thing, then you will inevitably end up in hell. According to Buddhism, it depends on whether, where you end up, depends on the strength of your practice, actually, and what kinds of wholesome states you're developing, and how you're sharing them with yourself, with the world. That actually makes a huge difference. And the, the reason why this, um, this is, I don't have exactly the, the, um, the sutta in front of me, but there's another sutta in which there is a person from another sect who has this belief. And the Buddha says, well, if you die with that belief, then you are actually more likely for that to, have, for that to be the outcome. Because in a sense, you have set your intention that that is what should be the outcome. Whereas if you die understanding the belief that your practice has created some wholesome states that would be a better field for that thing to have developed and be done with, then that is also, uh, in a way, sort of setting an intention toward what the resultant would be. And when I was in hospice, I actually saw this. I actually saw the way that people talked about what they thought was going to come next. And they would say, oh, I see some, uh, for example, there was a woman, there was an uh, African-American woman, and she had been in the... Uh, in the hospice for a few months, like three months, four months, and they were kind of surprised actually that she was still alive. She had, because she was in, um, her body was in pretty serious bad shape. And yet there she was, you know, she was still alive and she was actually still talking some, some, on some days. And I went in to talk with her on a day when she was getting her hair done, she had her, uh, all of her, uh, her uh, rollers in her hair, and she's lying there in bed, and she's awake enough to be talking to me, and she says, I said, well, what do you think? What do you think? Is it, is it getting to be close to your time? And she said, oh, no, no, no. I talked to the guy who flies the plane. Or no, he talked to me. And he says, it's not going to happen until after next week. The guy who flies the plane talked to her and told her, it's not going to happen until after next week. All right. And sure enough, it didn't happen. 
until after that next week. She lived, she lived almost two weeks more. You know. And other people would say other things. There was a, there was a woman who was a, a long, long time Buddhist practitioner and we didn't think she was that close, actually. And then one day I walked in, and she was looking very, very low energy. And she was lying in bed, and she said, you know what? I can see that there's a door. She's saying this as I'm in, in the room. I can see that there's a door, and it has a big arrow on it, like this. And I said, I'm supposed to go that way. <laughs> right? So you see, you know, this, the power of the mind and our understanding of what's happening and how we're interpreting, you know, various events. We don't know. This is all very, you know, subtle and complex. And what the Buddha is pointing to, however, is that these developments, these, these ways that we can meditate, meditatively open the mind and establish a wholesome state and share it, and, and really um, um, develop a very strong energy toward wholesome states, that is very valuable. That is very valuable. And it's very valuable not just after you die. It's also very valuable right here and right now. right? Because a large part of metta practice is also, like I said, establishing the attention, the way that we view the world with kindness, right? We start to have that be the basic tendency of the mind. So just to give you, tell you a short story and then I'll wrap it up so we can move on to Q&A. Um, <clears throat> when I first arrived here in D.C. Uh, or in the D.C. area, uh, it was July of last year, and the, it was. I had literally just arrived a few days before, and my friend Terry and I, who had driven across the country from California, were staying with my daughter and my daughter Kellen. We went over to the Eastern Market, what's known as the Eastern Market, in D.C. And it's a, you know, it's it's on the weekends, and it's a this big kind of outdoor space. There are some streets that are blocked off, and you know, people selling different things, you know, clothing and art and um, newspaper subscriptions and jewelry and, you know, food and so on. And we were walking through, and we, we had been to lunch, and then we were walking on our way back toward the car. And this man approached me, came up very close to me, and he he asked me some questions. I don't recall exactly how the conversation started. He asked me some questions about who I was and so on. I told him my name and and he started to say something like, "How can we have real peace in the world? There isn't actual real peace in the world." And I said, "Well, there is actually harmony in the world in the sense that what we see is this set of conditions that fits together perfectly. And so if we want peace in the world, we need to be peace in our own inner world. 
and he started to, and he said something else about oh about like there was violence you know a lot of gun violence happening people dying just blocks away from here and I said well think about the good Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. telling you to stand in your place of peace and he the, the gentleman leaned up and said they shot him in the head they shot him in the head nobody heard him and I said they heard him and we heard him and in that moment and you could see him like even wince with the idea when he was when he said that they shot Dr. King in the head Reverend King he he said uh, you could see the pain in his face I mean he he was um, frustrated that's the way that I received him was that he wasn't somebody who was out of control he was just a person a man who's very frustrated and but when I said that we heard him there was just a total 180 change like you could even see his face got softer he took a half step back he turned his head and just looked at me for a minute. And then he said something like, I'm paraphrasing, he said, oh, yes, we are people of peace. And I tell you this story not because I could have planned it that way, right? This wasn't this wasn't a this wasn't a planned conversation. It was only because of years of metta practice that I was able to talk to him like that. And it was only after the conversation when my friend Terry, who had driven me across the country, approached me and was like, Are you okay? Oh my gosh, like that I realized that it could have been like seen as a conflict, what was what he was presenting. But I didn't, I didn't see it that way. And I don't think ultimately that he walked away feeling like it was that way. You know? And so I owe that to the, the many years of practice and the many teachers of metta that make that, um, that way of relating possible. So metta has this very strong, powerful effect on our hearts, on our minds. And um, I can tell that story at the end because I think that there has been, there can be a tendency for folks to think about or to teach metta as some practice that is about how to be in relationship to others. But... Metta is actually about how to be in relationship to your own intention and your own kama. And when you can do that in that beautiful, wholesome way, then everything you touch, everything you see, everything you 
everyone you speak to will experience that, will see that from another perspective, from their own perspective. So I hope that you take this as a very strong exhortation about why you should be doing metta practice. You could be doing metta practice and, um, and really seeing how, how transformative this path can be. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.